0: You're listening to CRST
1: Podcast from Brynmar Communications. Welcome to the second episode of special four part series of cataract refractive surgery today. The podcast that dives into ways in which you can differentiate your cataract and refractive surgery practice from others in your local market. I am Ahmed Assaf from Ain Shams University Cairo, Egypt, your host for today. During the first episode, panelists shared their peers for planning cataract and refractive surgery. In this episode, I'm joined by Johnny Moore from Cathedral Eye Hospital in Ireland, Mayank Navanati from Brighton and Sussex University Hostels in United Kingdom, Ivo Selvia from Hospital Kuf Tiju Lisbon in Portugal, and Yasha Windelstein from Institute Refractive and ophthalmic surgery in Switzerland. Our discussion today will focus on ways in which we can deliver a great experience to our patients during cataract and refractive surgery. I am excited to learn more from my colleagues today. So let's get started. As you know, ultrasound in cataract surgery is considered as double-edged sword And we use ultrasound energy to emulsify nucleus during cataract surgery and lens-based refractive surgery as well. Yet at the same time, it it may injure precious corneal endothelium as well as other delicate intraocular structures. So fragmentation may help surgeon to reduce ultrasound energy inside the eye. And I'll start by asking the panelists, I want to ask you about the preferred fragmentation pattern. So, Dr. Navanati, would you like to comment on which way or which fragmentation pattern do you like, especially in cases of heart cataract? Uh,
2: Thank you, Dr. Asaf, for inviting me for this uh, podcast, Um, and thank you for this question. Uh, For the heart cataracts, I usually use uh, a vertical chop technique after doing a deep sculpt in the center, and uh, that works really well for me. unless it's a leathery cataract where actually vertical chop needs to be at multi-level. So we go from front to the back and then make sure that the posterior plate of the cataract is separated um, with the the second instrument.
1: Great and uh, so it's a kind of a stop and chop technique or you start just quick chop from the very beginning?
2: Um, It's a stop and chop technique.
1: Exactly, okay. Uh, Dr Ivo, uh, would you like to Comment on fragmentation pattern, especially in cases of weak zonules. Do you do you change your parameters? Do you change your technique for uh, disassembly of the nucleus?
3: Um, yeah, I would like to thank uh, for the invitation for this podcast, Dr. Asaf. Um, so I I I do uh, I mostly do uh, in the bag horizontal shopping. That's actually my go-to technique in any cataract but especially in hard cataracts as well i think it works really well as long as you have the um, an appropriate chopper a, a good cutting chopper that protects the capsule uh, so that's the technique i kind of um, um specialized in i i would say uh, in weeks zonules um i mean we always we always learn when we're when we're learning cataract surgery that in very dense and mature cataracts we probably should plan for an extra capsular or something like that. I kind of leaned away from that. I always try FACO. Um, and even in weak zonules, I find that there's no harm in trying to do a circular, a big circular rexis and try to FACO from a small incision. Because if you notice that during phaco the, the, the zonules are actually very weak and you have a big phacodonesis, you can always change your, your strategy for that cataract. So my my own the only thing I really change is I always have different options of IOLs because I feel that probably there will there will not be a, stabi- a stable bag to implant a monofocal uh, um, one piece IOL in the bag so I always have other IOLs planned so I usually have a three piece and a, and a iris fixated IOL in hand to to be able to to use them in case we need to. But in terms of fecal fragmentation patterns, I really don't change it uh, at all.
1: We'll talk about the IOL later. So uh, what about the pseudoxfoliation? You know that the cases with pseudoxfoliation have the complex, sort of complex cataract surgery. There is weak zonules as well as maybe the pupil is not pretty well dilated. So um, do you change your the fragmentation pattern? My question is to Dr. Moore or just uh, do uh, phacoemulsification as a routine cataract
0: surgery. Uh Dr. Saff thank, thanks once again for inviting me to to speak here. Um and and to answer your question, no I, I would go along the same similar lines uh, as Dr. Silva. I I do a, a horizontal chop in in the bag. For for cases specific like you say, I would tend to do a a larger rexus. Um and also prepare for things like with a CTR in these sort of cases um, potentially to introduce at some point even even during the the fecal emulsification if required. I, I think the, the, the really key point uh, in, in doing these sort of chops however is to have really good suction um, and therefore so to have very high vacuum but also to retain um, really good stability of the anterior chamber is key in these situations. And if you have high vacuum, you, you can really control that nucleus and uh, and allow yourself to chop. Uh, and, and sometimes, as I say, if there's a leathery aspect to it, you're able to lift it away from, from the posterior capsule and still to safely maybe one or two um, uh, pools to, to, to go through and, and know you're still... Um, you, you're not going to impact upon the posterior capsule on this. So I think, to, to me, those are the key things, and just to take your time and to ensure that you're getting through the nucleus fully, but but to be able to hold it carefully. Uh,
1: which chopping technique do you prefer in pseudoexfoliation um, with the small pupil, the horizontal chopping or vertical chopping technique? Uh,
0: well, I, I sometimes do a combination, uh, and really it's uh, whatever is available I mean there there's a case of feel here and in a lot of these cases you're you're feeling rather than seeing so you you know where the position is uh, as I said based upon you're able to hold the nucleus you're able to actually pull it slightly towards you and you know you've got space behind that um, uh, and you know the depth that you can go to in these cases as well so I, I don't change my you know routine too much here but I, I again, we're in the cases rather than seeing what you're doing you're, you're feeling what you're doing okay thank you dr uh,
1: windelstein would you like to use other ancillary methods like the femtosecond laser or my loop in such complex cases like dense cataract or cases of weak zonules or just do it as a routine phacoemulsification?
4: i started uh, in a university clinic where we didn't ha- or where we didn't use a femtosecond laser we had one but just learning it from from other surgeons i never used the femtosecond laser um, we had the my loop available we rarely used the my loop if it presented useful like in, in very dense cataracts just from seeing that and there were some situations where it was where it came in quite handy um, especially for for the more dense cataracts. Um, now in Zurich, I'm faced with a different situation and we have a very high rate of femtosecond lasers. And I have to say that it does come in handy, especially for the Rexes, because it's just it's just very safe. And, and in, I feel like in the in the more complex cases, um, especially if you're um, not facing uh, decades of experience, it might be very nice to just have a secure um, capsular access and and don't run any risk of it running out. Um, so I do like the femtosecond laser um, in in weeks on units, for example. Um, just gives you a bit of more uh, uh, more security during the uh, surgery.
1: Great. So you, you'd like to, you, um, you uh, use the femtosecond laser um, mainly to secure the rexes and you can use it, the technology as well to fragment the nucleus and soften the, the nucleus to minimize the ultrasound energy. But in cases of premium lenses, as I understood from you, you prefer the femtosecond laser to secure the size as well as the location of the rexes, right?
4: Yeah, that's basically it. So, so you have a very centered uh, rexus. You, you have the, you have the um, perfect diameter of the rexus. So it's a very, it does, it's, it's just a very nice scenario for me as a, as a surgeon.
1: For me, uh, I was fortunate to have both technologies. I, I can use the femtosecond laser as well as the MyLoop. And uh, to be honest, I like the MyLoop, especially in heart cataract because we can have a complete separation of the nucleus into two halves and sometimes we can divide the nucleus into four quadrants with the femtosecond laser sometimes we cannot get a complete division or separation of the nucleus because we have around 40 uh, 400 microns offset from the posterior capsule otherwise the femtosecond uh, laser energy might accidentally hit the posterior capsule so we have to be off around 400 microns and we end up most of the times, with the quadrants are still attached together posteriorly by a posterior isthmus. But with the my loop, we can divide the nucleus completely by the movement of the loop from periphery toward the center, so we can have a complete separation of the nucleus. So I prefer myself, I prefer the my loop in brunicent heart cataract in order to complete separate, divide the nucleus into two halves, and we can turn around and divide each half into two quadrants. Uh, Again, sometimes my experience with the femtosecond laser energy, sometimes because of the density of the cataract, uh, the laser energy cannot penetrate deeper into the uh, deep layers of the lens because of the opacity. So you end up with just scratches on the superficial layers of the cataract, but there is no too much efficient separation or fragmentation in the deeper layer of the cataract. My question now to Dr. Silva would you like to use the femtosecond laser in, in cataract surgery, especially in complex cases?
3: I've, I've used it quite, quite a lot for some time, uh, in any, in mostly, any, in most cases. And, and I, lately I haven't been using it that much, uh, except in patients that really ask for it or in premium IOLs with very good dilation. And that's basically for two reasons. One is because you, with Fento, you always lose dilation. So if midriasis is not really good, if, it, if you have like a medium-sized medium, pu- medium sized pupil, when you'll start surgery, it will be smaller. And especially in, in pseudo-exfoliation pseudo and weak zonules that Yasha uh, was mentioning, I really don't like it at all. And it's just because of one thing, because when you do the rexis, uh, when you do the manual rexis, you just get capsule. When you do the rexis with the the Fento, it's very uh, centered and, uh, and regular and it has all those benefits, but it goes all the way down into cortical material. So you not only have the capsule, but you have a cap of cortex. So when you do your hydro dissection, the plane you get is usually not between capsule and cortex, and you have to be very careful in making sure that your hydro dissection goes in between those parts. And if you're not, that, if you're not careful enough, when you, at the later stages of surgery, when you're, getting, when you're trying to uh, get to the cortical matter, it's more stuck to your capsule, and it will be easier to get a, like, a zonular disinsertion. I mean, that's my experience with Fento. I really like it as a technology and I I do believe that it will probably see some use and it's going to be important for younger surgeons for sure. But it has some issues that need to be sorted out, in my opinion.
1: Yes, I agree with you that uh, to get the benefits of the femtosecond laser, you have to get a pretty dilated pupil. Otherwise, you are stuck with a small pupil and then you will do some sort of small capsulotomy and makes uh, the surgery uh, even more complicated and uh, it's a, a new technique so we have to modify our techniques compared to the routine fake massification because you know we don't do hydro dissection with the femtosecond lasers that's why you, the cortex somehow might be sticky to the capsule so we need to change our technique with the femtosecond laser but we cannot deny the benefits of securing a perfect capsulotomy in terms of size location as well When can as well address some of the corneal astigmatism, especially if the astigmatism is less than one diopter. So we can nail this small amount of astigmatism to get the maximum benefit, especially in the uh, cases of uh, premium IOLs. Uh, But in terms of fragmentation, definitely the femtosecond laser can fragment the nuclear three and four nuclei, but in cases of Bronesian cataract, i prefer the my loop because with the my loop we can get a complete separation of the nucleus into two halves and sometimes into four quadrants but with the femtosecond laser we end up with the posterior isthmus connecting the quadrants together because we are not allowed to go with the femtosecond laser energy pretty close to the posterior capsule. We have around 400 microns offset from the posterior capsule. Otherwise, the laser energy might hit the posterior capsule and complicate the surgery. And again, uh, because of the opacity, sometimes the femtosecond laser cannot penetrate through deeper layers into the cataract. So that's why I personally prefer in cases of brunescent cataract to minimize the ultrasound energy to use the my loop in a, a much better and much more efficient compared to the femtosecond laser energy. Uh, now let's move to the uh, uh, fluidics. As you know, the FACO technology, including the fluidics, as fluidics play a crucial role in cataract surgery. And the paradigm now is shifted towards improving the anterior chamber stability during a surgery with the new pump system. So my question to Dr. Silva, can you please share your experience with the Quattro Pump technology?
3: Um, yes, sure. So uh, last year I had the opportunity to work with the, with the Quatera machine, with the Quattro pump technology, while we had it um, in our hospital for, um, uh, for a brief period of time. And um, just for context, I, I did my training uh, during residency with the Signature machine. Actually, I, I, I started with the Sovereign from AMO, now Johnson & Johnson, and then we moved to Signature. So I did my training with that. Then I moved to hospitals and I I started doing surgery with Infinity from Alcon. Now we moved to the Centurion. And I also have some experience with the Stellaris machine. So uh, I've worked with quite a few um, different machines and different pumps. Um, And the Quattro pump, um, it it uses a different technology to keep the anterior chamber stable. Whereas the old machines had the bottle and uh, it was like a height controlled uh, infusion. And the new ones like the Centurion have a plate system that compresses the bag uh, and that infuses the the BSS into the eye. The Quattro pump has basically two pumps that work at the same time, one for infusion and the other one for aspiration. And they just compare the volume of liquid that goes in and outside of the eye and and it tries to maintain the IOP stable while doing that. So... In my experience, um, it it works pretty well. I mean, the the chamber was very stable, um, and in in terms of uh, of um, ultrasound deployment, it was also very efficient. But what was more, uh, what was um, better for me was the fact that it was very easy. It was very user friendly. It was very easy to optimize because you having used several machines. Um, In the end, they all work well as long as you have the time to optimize them to your liking, to the way you like to work. I can't really say that one is better than the other. I think they're all good as long as you have the time and you take the time to optimize them to your liking. What I really liked about the Quatera is that it was quite easy and fast after just a couple of cases to get it working in the way I like to to do surgery. And that was was really good. Great.
1: So... uh... Dr. Moore, uh, I think you have uh, experience as well with the Quattro Pump technology. Can you share your experience, please?
0: I, I used it in, in, in my clinic for you know uh, several months. And uh, uh, in fact, it's, it, it was just taken away to be sort of serviced again and it's back again. So I'll be reusing it again. But yeah, I concur with, with uh, what Dr. Silva said that it, it's very easy to get it Working to to really, you know, and the rep was there. You you basically say, "Look, I I want this. I mean, I I I like high flow and a lot of uh, vacuum." And you know, really, they were able to, to adapt it really quickly. And I think the key thing is is that it keeps a very stable anterior chamber. There's no doubt about that. You can you can push this hard without getting surges and loss of the anterior chamber, which is always the worry. Um, uh, you know, for all of us, uh, that, 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 you know, different times you're losing, you're, you're losing that anterior chamber. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- this, this worked very well. It was very straightforward. It didn't pose any, any problems or, and it didn't, you know, you, you, you weren't getting a lot of anything unexpected with it, which was the nice thing, you know, it did sort of, it sort of delivered what, what it said in the tin, you know, <laughs> that it, it'll give you stability and, and ease of surgery.
1: Great. So uh, can anyone share experience with different pump systems, not especially to be a quattro pump, like let's say peristaltic or venturi pump, especially in challenging cases? So uh, Nabanati, what kind of pump do you prefer in your routine and challenging cases?
2: In uh, challenging cases, I would prefer peristaltic pump because I like uh, slow motion phaco emulsification with soft shell technique, so um, I find venturi pump to be slightly faster, and I don't mind using venturi pump in routine cases. I've got access to Centurion, Constellation, and Stellaris. Based on which hospital I'm doing the case, I'll have access to these cases, but uh, routinely if the case is complex, I would uh, prefer peristaltic pump. So what about the ultrasound? What kind of
1: ultrasound modality do you prefer? The longitudinal, the transversal, or the torsional? This is uh, the question for Dr. Nabanati as well.
2: I would normally prefer the torsional FACO because uh, in complex, dense cataract cases, uh, it would deliver less energy than uh, conventional coaxial FACO emulsification. Um, so that's my preferred. And do you combine sometimes the
1: torsional with the longitudinal, in, especially in hard cases?
2: Yeah, yeah, depending on the density of the cataract, I would then uh, increase the longitudinal um, power based on... Um, the cataract density. I would prefer to use only uh, torsional if possible, Uh, but if I have to increase the longitudinal at the same time, I'll do that.
1: Uh, Dr. Silva, would you like to comment on the ultrasound uh, technology you use?
3: I agree with Dr. Nanavati. Uh, I I tend to prefer torsional, and if I can do the case with just torsional, that's what I'll do. Sometimes you need to change the longitudinal, but you, you increase shattering. So, um it's kind of a trade-off so every time i manage to do it with torsional i, ju- I do it with torsional alone
1: okay great uh, dr moore w- which is better for you the fast feco or the
0: safe feco fast feco or, or safe feco um well i always think you, you, you want to do safe feco <laughs> um whether it's faster whether it's fast or not it, it uh uh, it should be safe, you know, so um, I think we, we sh- the, the correct answer is always to go for safe, uh, irrespective of speed, you know. I see. Okay. And Yasha, do
1: you prefer the fast or safe vehicle? because you are doing a femtosecond laser and sometimes it's somehow time consuming. So would you prefer the fa- safe feco or the fast feco?
4: I think it's definitely the the safe FACO, uh, which is way above the fast FACO. Okay.
1: Okay, I think if you can combine both, uh, it would be marvelous, so we can get the the safe as well as fast FACO, because, you know, by fast FACO, we can reduce the injury, the time of injury of the ocular structures, so I think this is related somehow to the fast visual recovery as well, so anyhow, but of course, safety comes first. Now let's move on the IOL selection. As you know, in the current era, we are privileged by having many options of IOLs like the monofocal, monofocal plus, new generations of EDOF lenses and trifocals. And now we can select the IOL to suit our patient's lifestyle and as well as according to the eye anatomy. So regards the For example, the influence or the impact of the pupil size on the IOL selection. Dr. Yasha, would you like to comment on this? Does the pupil size affect your IOL selection?
4: It does, yeah. Um, So if we are talking about basically um or for example if we're talking about premium iols multifocal IOLs, i think the size of the pupil is very very important so if the if the pupil is too big um nearing the seven millimeters um i think it's always worth to think twice if you're going into the multifocal or EDOF direction um the plus in in photic phenomena has to be very very um, well considered for the patient and if it's really his wish Um, if he stays with that wish you might either consider um, convincing him of something else or maybe going for a duet implantation where it's very reversible instead of just um, inserting a multifocal iron in the back Um, i think that's one aspect and if the pupil is too small if i have something um it's very seldom but if i have a pupil anywhere nearing the two millimeter zone um, i might consider my multifocal iol um uh, 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 a factor of cost that's not giving the benefits it would give a patient that could make use of all the diffractive and refractive elements of the iol so um, those are basically two things i'd um, consider um, then a further factor is basically patients after LVC um, where I can see the optical zone and then we have to compare the the pupil size and the optical zone in order to, to make a decision for the IOL you choose. Um, so yeah, I think pupil size, um, especially mesopic meso- pupil size, it's a thing that should definitely be considered if you're choosing your IOL.
1: How do you measure the pupil size? Which platform or which device do you use?
4: Uh, we have the MS-39, um, which does uh, our size measurement. Okay.
1: So, um, does the angle kappa is considered in the IOL selection? And my, my question to Dr. Navanati.
2: Um, angle kappa is an important parameter. Um, I do consider that when I'm using multifocal lenses. Um, sometimes angle kappa leads to decentration based on the visual axis and the uh, amount of the angle and that can actually be beneficial with uh, certain types of EDOF lenses because that will induce an additional coma, which is what we found in one of our studies. So if you, if you have some decentration of these lenses which uh, has more spherical abrasion in the center of the optic, it can induce a bit of coma which helps uh, reading uh, more in these patients. But when it comes to multifocal lenses with rings or diffractive trifocal lens, angle-carpa can be a bit daunting because it can induce a lot of uh, dysphotopsia, um, which can then be a problem for the patient. Okay, perfect. So does any one
1: of the panelists do mix and match with the premium lenses?
4: I do indeed. Um, So there are two, um, basically two, uh, yeah, occurrences where i do mix and match um one thing are patients that do not really want to go into multifocal iols because of the photic phenomena Um, but want just a bit of um just a bit more of uh, of uh, depth of field um So a very nice thing for these patients can be doing a monofocal IOL in the dominant eye and combining it with a EDOF IOL in the non-dominant eye. I think that's also a very nice scenario for patients that already have one monofocal IOL from a a past uh, one-sided surgery. Um, I've collected some some nice data on that and um, I'm about to publish that. Uh, on the other hand side, it's patient where one eye looks perfectly fine for a multifocal IOL and the other eye is, let's say, looking fine for an EDOF IOL. So I like to combine two IOLs of the same platform, let's say the the LISA tree and the LARA IOL, for example. So the perfect eye gets the LISA tree, and the eye where there's maybe a little bit of irregular astigmatism that's not too high, let's say around a diopter or something like that, where I'm not very um, comfortable with uh, with uh, toric correction, um, I might go for an IL in that case on the second and I've also seen very good results for that.
1: Okay, uh, the same question for you, Dr. Wendelstein. Uh, do you do the micro-monovision? Do you believe in micro-monovision sometimes or just uh, go for the premium lenses all your in
4: all your cases i do micro monovision as well um i do that in patients where i don't feel comfortable with multifocal iols let's say there's some some um, singular drusens or um anything else i'm I'm not very liking Um, let's maybe the the personality of the patient or or anything in that regard um then i might switch over to um to a monovision scenario or mini monovision scenario, um, but I'm testing that with um, with contact lenses usually beforehand, and, and see if the patient is uh, is able to cope with the monovision scenario.
1: Okay, Doctor Moore, I think you have a lot of experience with the trifocal lens. Can you share your long term data with the trifocal lenses?
0: Yeah, well, uh, I, s- I suppose m- most of my experience with the um, or or the latter experience. Uh, is is mix and matching with the Lara and the Lisa rather than bilateral trifocal. I mean, I started off with a small cohort of maybe thirty five to forty bilateral uh, Lisa's, but my, my issue with 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 really any of the bilateral trifocals is that you you know you you have to do to counsel your patients, uh, and you have to be more careful with your patients um, in the sense uh, of ensuring that they understand there's an adaptation period uh, to, to get sort of good vision. So and, and I just I, I just don't like this concept that uh, you're giving someone a, a treatment and you're saying don't judge your vision for about six weeks. Um, so I, I moved really to doing Lara Lisa's and uh, uh, you know I, I, I think the whole, you know if you look at the combined defocus curves of them, they're very good um they they're complementary uh in the sense that um you you know in that for that computer distance you really get uh an an increased um depth of focus there by adding the Lara into the Lisa with the LISA. Uh, and you get, for want of a better term, a wow effect. I mean the you you know I tend to do the Lara first and then the LISA a week later and do any small adjustments on biometry based on the results of the Lara for the Lisa and uh, that way uh, you get both accurate, but bi- biometry results in your second eye and, and you also get a, you know, a seamless sort of adjustment uh, to, to the multifocality of the, of the incoming trifocal a week later, it really seems to prepare the way for it to, in the brain, having that small amount of multifocality in the, initially in the Lara. So that, that's kind of been my, you know, go-to, um, you know, concept Now I also, you know, take on board these aspects of, you know, if you have a little bit of irregularity in one eye, you might put the, go for the Lara in that, be it the dominant or the non-dominant, uh, and I agree with that. And sometimes I just go for bilateral Laras if I'm a wee bit worried about irregular stigmatism or, or sometimes in post-laser uh, uh, cases. Um, but that in, in normal eyes, uh, who wants want to get out of glasses? I'll go to that Lara Lisa. When when I sort of assess over a longer term the results, I, I in those cases I have about eighty six percent or a hundred percent independent from glasses uh, with that that mixture. I mean it's not a hundred percent, but I mean the vast majority of those other fourteen percent are are independent for glasses most of the time. And it's really only the close, very close work that they're requiring uh, additional glasses for.
1: Okay, my question to the panelists, does anyone implant trifocal lens in an eye with previous laser vision correction?
2: Yeah, I um, routinely offer this option to the patient uh, based on their visual demands uh, because the formulas have changed and they've improved a lot. So uh, most of the times uh, I would say that to the patient that it's 90% accurate in getting what we want to achieve. And 5% chances that I may have to do a top-up laser uh, eventually. And I'll off- only offer these uh, options to the patient um, whose corneas are eligible for a top-up afterwards. So if the cornea has got ectasia to start with, with following LASIK or some sort of laser procedure, then I'll warn the patient that I may not be able to top you up if uh, we don't achieve the target. So based on the case selection, I would uh, offer the option. Okay. Dr. Silva, would you like
3: to add something? I don't do a lot of mix and match. Uh, I do in my routine cases, in my routine cataract cases, I do a lot of uh, monofocal plus with micromonovision. I've, I've been doing that with very uh, good results, especially with small pupils, going back to the pupil size question in the in the beginning, Those patients really tend to get good results at near even with monofocals. So I, I don't go with trifocals with those patients. But in cases where I'm really looking for spectacle independence and in patients that come to us for that, I do think that the trifocals and that the mix and match uh, strategy that you were both talking about is, is, is a very good idea. Also, uh, doing the, the mini-monovision or monovision in the patients that tolerate it with EDOF lenses, I really like those two. Um, so, yeah.
1: How much myopia do you target in the non-dominant eye in cases of mini-monovision?
3: In cases of micromonovision, where I don't even do a, 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 a contact lens trial where I just talk to the patients about it, I target I do the dominant eye first and I target it for plano or minus 0.25 and see how they do with their near vision. And then uh, using that information, I target minus 0.5 to minus 0.75. That's what I go to with micro. Um, if we have a patient that's previously myopic and that is used to using contacts and is actually has been using monovision in his life, I try to use that to, to his advantage and, and reproduce it after surgery. And if a patient wants more and is used to more, especially if he's myopic, I do a contact lens trial to see if they, if they tolerate a, a larger difference than that. But you really want the curves to overlap because if they don't, um the complaints might might be bigger
1: okay thank you dr windelstein would you implant a trifocal lens in an eye with previous hyperopic or myopic lasik or laser vision correction in general
4: i would do so but it depends very much on the cornea of the eye. so as i said um, it depends on the laser profile that was um, uh, used for that eye on the optic zone uh, that was used i'm looking at the pupil Um, then spherical aberration is a very very important point for me if i see that the spherical aberration is too high um, i stray away from using multi multifocal IOLs in that eye Um, if i see too many irregularities in the optical zone um, i also stay away from multifocal IOLs. so basically if i if I'm having a central, um, centrally regular cornea with a good aberration profile, I think doing a multifocal IOL is fine as long as the patient knows that the study results um, regarding my refractive accuracy um, are a bit lower than a normal patient and it's okay to go with that. I think it's fine to do so. Um, but as soon as something looks too irregular, I would stay away from it.
1: Okay, and my question to the panelists: What is the edo flences? What do you think about the edo flences? For example, in these cases, in this scenario, suppose that you have a patient that is um, truly enthusiastic for spectacle independence, and this patient has done in the past laser vision correction in both eyes, and you see that the corneal aberration, like the doctor Windstein mentioned, that it's somehow high or there is some coma on the corneal surface and still the patient wants somehow spectacle independence. Would you opt for EDOF lenses or just forget about these premium lenses and go for monofocal lenses? So let's start by Dr. Moore. What do you
0: think about this case? Once again we go back to the this assessment of your 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 corneal surface and I mean I find the the MS thirty nine a very good tool in this case. Um it's accurate and it's easy to assess both for a physiological pupil as well as just your standard six millimeters. Um, so whatever the patient's pupil is roughly, and, um, uh, I, I, I assess the spherical aberration there. So if they've, if they had a previous hyperopic laser treatment and maybe have a lot of negative spherical aberration, I certainly don't want to go for a um, say an edof which is utilizing um, you know positive spherical aberration because you're basically just fighting one against the other, but in those cases I, I would use a say a, a, a monofocal uh, lens with either a, a zero spherical aberration or even a even a negative spherical aberration just to add on there and then utilize the, the two to um, you know try and to obviously r- r- remain within a non toxic level of of either negative or positive spherical aberration. Um, and if they've had a previous myopic laser treatment, I mean, a lot of these, and the, certainly in the larger ones, will have some degree of positive spherical aberration. And you can you can use those and combine them with, uh, with I, I use the Rayner EMV in these cases uh, sometimes to help me, or just a monofocal, depending on the level of it. So uh, it's really important that the assessment and the individualization of what you do based upon your corneal profiles
1: yes because we now we have a lot of IOL choices and i think we have to find which IOL is, is suitable for our patients based on aberrations, based on dry eye. Let's not forget the dry eye after laser vision correction, and of course the ablation profile, centration, etc. Dr. Nanavati, would you like to comment? Would you, would you use the Edof lenses in cases, in some cases of after laser vision correction?
2: Yes, I do actually, based on the patient's choice again. Um, so it is based on. The diagnostics and mainly the diagnostics is uh, Pentacam, eye trace, uh, and optoview epithelial mapping, which are there in my clinic. Um, from a study which we've done for the ESCRS called as a Mirov study, we found that smaller pupil size and almost zero spherical abrasion gives a bit of pseudo accommodation in patients, along with a, a, a slightly uh, myopic in the range of minus 0.3 diopters of spherical equivalent postoperatively. So then I will choose the lens based on the peripheral asphericity. Um, uh, So, for example, if the cornea is positively um, uh, spherically abraded, then I'll like to have the total spherical abrasion to zero. So I'll use a lens which corrects um, the spherical abrasion to the maximum. Um, Some of the lenses are neutral to the spherical abrasion. So based on the neutrality or the correction uh, facility of the lens, I'll choose the EDOF lens. Perfect. Uh, Dr. Yasha, uh,
1: what is your threshold for correction of astigmatism, beyond which you opt for toric IOLs? So what is your threshold
4: for corneal cylinder to do the toric lens? Mm, I think a very interesting point that was brought up by you Um with the fragmentation um question is um the case of weak zonules so i think it it might be interesting not to use toric irls in an in unstable situation but rather go for arcade incisions um i'd opt to correct uh, around 125 to to, to 1.5 uh, diopters of cylinder otherwise for toric IRLs, um yeah same as for for arcade incisions as soon as i see um, for normal IOLs, um, something around 1.25 to 1.5, that's the point where I start with the astigmatism correction. And if I go into more specific scenarios, let's say uh, multifocal IOLs or EDOF IOLs, um, I'd, I'd rather be able to correct more for multifocal IOLs. So I think the threshold is somewhere around 0.75 diopters for my multifocal IOLs. Um, and for edof IOLs, they're not as as um, yeah, as many studies on it as there are for multifocal IOLs. But I, I'd correct also if I can from 0.75. But I'd I'd set my um my limits a bit higher, and I could also do an edof IOL around 1.0 diopters of uh, astigmatism. Yes. Um, very interesting aspect i have here in zurich is that we um often opt for for some kind of bioptic scenario where we opt for a rather spherical aisle and, and and just plan a laser ablation for the for the um for toric enhancement so to speak or for, for astigmatism enhancement afterwards um that's a very that was a very new um scenario for me and a very interesting one um, because basically you correct two things at once it's um it's the prediction error and the cylinder afterwards. So it gives you a nice option in certain cases of multifocal levels um, where, you can, um, where you can address both, especially for um, very short eyes, uh, which are harder to uh, calculate or, or also even longer eyes that are a bit harder to calculate and, and where you know that your chance of prediction are a bit higher than in normal eyes.
1: Interesting. How long do you wait? after the cataract surgery until you bring the patient back to the laser vision correction to correct the It
4: depends a bit so if I plan for bioptics from the get-go it's around one to three months I'm, I'm per- personally um, I'm opting to wait a bit longer to the three months uh, mark but sometimes you have patients which, um, which just want their adjustment a bit earlier and wanted around the one month mark um if i am strictly speaking of um just correcting something that's left that wasn't planned to to go to the laser i'd rather opt for the three month scenario because i find that patients might in some in some scenarios patients might be a bit um a bit more content with the uh, visual acuity after three months than they're after one month and i think that's the the nicer um limit so to say
1: okay thank you now a question to dr silva what kind of alignment method do you prefer in cases of toric iols
3: um digital we use the callisto system with the zeiss forum in the microscope it um yeah that's my my go-to method
1: yes uh, i like it very much because it's linked as well to the iol master 700
3: yeah exactly you can get all the the information from the patient uh that's uh it's really good and the fact that you can have also the biometry and uh, the iol selection in the same place you can get all the information it's right there to you so that's that's also a very important point for me
1: so uh does any of the panelists like to add something
3: i
4: think a nice point for Tor- for the planning of toric iols is that you can also use mean vector calculations so basically if you have two um, devices available let's say an AirMaster 700 and a Casia 2 or MS 39. I think some studies, especially by Hoffmann et al., have shown that that mean vector calculation does result in some very nice uh, um, yeah <laughs> results um, for aortic IRL planning.
1: Thank you very much. I think we have reached the conclusion of uh, our session. What a great discussion we had today. We covered a lot of points in this episode, all of which are helpful in the quest to create a truly elevated patient experience. I would like to thank our panelists for joining me today. Now stay tuned for the third episode in this series, which will focus on a very exciting topic, which is linticule extraction. Thank you very much.